Heart disease comes in many shapes and sizes, most serious cases requiring serious interventions to save the patient's life, and none are more serious than a heart transplant. However, transplantations require the availability of not just a heart, but a closely matched one to fit the body and biology of the recipient. If no donor hearts are available, the next generation of mechanical blood pumps may be able to step up and fill that need. Speaking with us today about their professional and personal experiences with left ventricular assisted devices, or LVADs for short, is Dr. Eric Stoll and Steve Griffiths. Dr. Eric Stoll, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. And your research is on a very specific branch of heart disease and cardiac failure. If you could tell us a little bit of the background to that. It is indeed. Uh, a few years ago, I had the fortune to get involved with research in what we call patients with advanced heart failure. So patients who have heart disease, but who are still continuing to suffer on the normal medications and therefore require what we would consider advanced treatment. And is there any particular type of heart failure that these people are experiencing? The type of heart failure typically is what we call the left heart failure. So a heart failure of the left side of the heart, which uh, means simply that the heart is not able to pump as efficiently anymore. It doesn't have the force to move the blood around. Uh, and it often starts on the left side of the heart. That's why it's called left, left heart failure. When it comes to a therapy to address this heart failure, is it a case of medication or mechanical intervention? Absolutely. So historically, uh, medications were all we had, and uh, this was what was helping people and certainly helping people for some time. For example, following a heart attack or other types of heart diseases, doctors would prescribe medications. They would last and work for a certain period of time, but unfortunately, some patients, their health declines and it gets, uh, the heart disease gets worse. And in these patients, we indeed have the option these days to implant what we call mechanical devices, so provide a mechanical circulatory support. How long have these been available? That's a very good question. The first prototypes, and we had the great fortune to sometimes meet some of these, uh, these dinosaurs in science, the shoulders that we stand on, uh, they actually started a long time ago, more than 25 years ago now, um, mostly in the US, uh, DeBakey, uh, but also Professor Jarvik and others. It took a long time to refine them, uh, hence why they maybe hadn't been as popular. And now I would say in the last 10 years, it has become at least in some countries, a, a serious option to help patients. Speaking of helping patients, we're also joined today by Steve Griffiths. Steve, if you could tell us maybe a little bit about your personal experience, maybe the first onset of heart disease and then the steps that led you to being involved in Dr. Storr's research. Thank you for inviting me here today. Initially, seven years ago, I had a heart attack watching rugby. Didn't know I was having one. Don't watch rugby. It's not good for you. Not good for your heart at all. So I ended up going into hospital some 18 hours after I had the heart attack. And because of this late presentation, it actually damaged the muscle of the heart. The heart is split into sort of two basic chambers, left and right. The central spine of the heart, that muscle virtually became like a brick wall. There was no play in it whatsoever. So after about a year on medication and being ramped up on sort of the normal, and I say normal in inverted commas, treatments and medications for heart failure I was gradually going downhill I couldn't tie my own shoelaces I was having problems getting dressed in the morning couldn't even put my socks on I was a sorry state I couldn't sleep on my back I couldn't breathe I was having real problems so in the end it was decided that I would go up to 
Queen Elizabeth II Hospital in Birmingham, because they don't do this sort of information in Wales, to go and see about what the alternatives were to treating me with just medication for heart failure. I get to Birmingham, I'm kept in for the best part of a week, all the tests done, blood tests, and one of the major tests that they do is they stick a catheter down your jugular vein and they check to see whether the pressures inside your lungs have been affected by your heart failure and whether those pressures are suitable for a donor heart, i.e. a heart transplant. If your heart or if a donor heart is put into your body when your pressures are too high because it's a muscle, it's got muscle memory so it'll remember what is put in. So if you put a donor heart in then that will remember the pressures that the donor had before, not the pressures that you've got in your system at the moment. I can imagine a mismatch there would be a problem. The mismatch there is a great problem. Instantly, the heart is rejected. Mm -hmm. They've wasted a donor heart, which someone has very kindly donated. So I had all the tests. I'm lying on the, in the cath lab, and I've got this tube down my neck, and the doctor is going, ooh, your pressures are a bit high. You're not suitable for transplant. You're too ill. Mm. And my argument was, well, how ill do I have to be? I'm not very well at the moment. He said exactly what I just said with the pressures on the right side of my heart because my right side was trying to compensate for my left side was really causing all the problems. So um, a tearful little conversation with my wife. I can't have a transplant. So what's my next option? Please, just someone fix me. I'm young. I'm 49. I've still got two kids growing up who haven't even gone through college yet. I need to see them grow up. Please help me, someone. So they said, you've got an option. I said, oh, fantastic. Let's take it. He said, what's your option? A left ventricular assist device, an LVAD. But unfortunately, because we live in Wales, I couldn't have the LVAD. If I'd have lived over the border in England, they'd have kept me in hospital and an LVAD would have been implanted within a couple of weeks. I have to come back home and they say, we've got to apply for funding. I thought, great, someone's going to play God in my life now. So I'm at my lowest ebb. We fill out the forms. The doctors do all this for you. You're just a pawn in the whole scenario. But you've got a chance of life. You've got a chance to keep living. And that's what you cling to. So everyone working on my side, trying to get all this through the committees in the Welsh Health Authority. And after two failures, we got it through. So on the third time, got a phone call saying, yep, you can have an LVAD. Happy days. I was really, really happy. Um, Thankfully, something was going to get... It's not an easy operation. It's the same operation to implant an LVAD as it is to do a heart transplant. It's exactly the same operation. We all know what goes wrong sometimes in the general anaesthetic. The risk factors are still absolutely huge. Mm -hmm. But I was given a chance, and that's all I ever wanted. I will fight my corner, but give me a chance. That's all I want. All this happened in sort of November time, the testing to see whether I could go on the transplant list. And then I was told in the November, yep, you need an LVAD. Then it came to sort of February, and they said, we've got a bed for you, Mr. Griffith. I said, I'm just watching sport. It was a Sunday afternoon. I'm just watching sport at the moment. It wasn't the rugby, was it? It was. It, oh, no. My, my beloved Scarlets were playing. <laughs> so I was watching the Scarlets play on a Sunday afternoon, and all of a sudden, bang, we've got a bed available for you. I said, well, can I watch the end of the game and I'll pop up later on or tomorrow? If you do that, there won't be a bed available for you. Mm. I thought, okay, I want that chance. I'm going up now. 
So I listened to the Scarlets on the radio on the way up and got taken up and put in a coronary care unit in Birmingham Hospital where I was pumped full of lots of drugs just to get me able to cope with my heart to sort of be in the best possible shape it could be to have the operation. And that was, goodness me, that was five years ago. The LVAD that you got then is the LVAD that you're wearing today? I've not had another one. And I've, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the same. It's the Heartmate 2, and it's a fantastic little machine, and it's given me everything that I ever hoped it would do, and more. It is a, excuse my French, but it's a pain in the bottom to absolutely have in the first instance, because it's like, I, I put it akin to having children again. For those of you who haven't had children, you've got to prepare. You, I can't go and jump in the shower straight away in the morning. I've got batteries, I've got a cable coming out of my stomach, which has got an electric feed going into it. So I'm there thinking, whoa, I can't just do what I want to do. If I need to go to the shops, I just can't walk out and go to the shops. As you've seen, I've come today with a rucksack. In that rucksack are spare batteries, spare controller for the what-if scenario. But I've been given a chance. The Welsh economy has spent a lot of money on me. A lot of clever people up in Birmingham Hospital have looked after me. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. I've been given the chance. I try and look after myself as best I can. The only problem is I can't exercise too much, hence I'm the shape I am. And no more stressful games of rugby either. I know, I don't watch England anymore. <laughs> or save the uh, political debate of whether it's worth watching England any time. Never. Uh, <laughs> And going back to you, Dr. Saw, the Heartmate 2 that Steve has, that's the second generation LVAD device, is that right? It is indeed, and it's been a very successful device. Uh, Steve is one of more than 26,000 patients who've now been implanted with this device, and very much like he has described, it is a lifeline for some people. It may be a temporary lifeline until they can get a heart transplant. For some people, it is the solution that the patient will continue to live with. So in a normal heart, blood goes in, blood goes out, or is it slightly more complicated than that? Well, it's, a, it's slightly more complicated than that because all four chambers, the areas of the heart that we have uh, as, as humans, they're not the same size or they certainly don't have the same function and they are not built in the same way we can look at muscle structure and we can see that the largest and certainly the part of the heart that needs to pump the hardest that has the most difficult job, which is that left side, is arranged in a very particular way. The arrangement is often described as a double helix, which simply means that the muscle fibers are wound. They're not straight in line, in parallel to each other. They form a certain pattern that can be likened to anything that is sort of found in nature that is circular, uh, snails' houses or in the galaxy or uh, different parts that we can find that are not straightly arranged, if that's a word. <laughs> so they are bundled together, they are clenched, that gives them more power for pushing blood around the body? Yes, so they are certainly bundled, that's a very good way of describing them. Uh, often people also describe them as if you squeeze out a towel, if you wring out a towel, it's that kind of arrangement, these bundles. And the efficiency or the purpose is actually not 100% known. <laughs> uh, we have some indication through scientific research and uh, trying to explain things that 
this arrangement might be to create a greater efficiency. For example, our cardiac myocytes, our heart cells, they only contract by about 10 to 15 percent, but the heart ejects about 60 percent. So it means that the heart muscle, how it contracts in this ringing motion, twisting motion, may be involved in greater efficiency to pump the blood around. Are there any compensations in a mechanical device that maybe cover for different functions that a normal heart would cover or that it's maybe stepping in to fill any other gaps? Yes, so it it does function like a normal heart in the way that it is able to pump what we call the cardiac output, so the amount of blood ejected with every beat, but it doesn't actually have beats. So one of the peculiarities biologically, um, medically for me as a researcher of great interest is that we could say that Steve sat next to me here doesn't have a pulse anymore because the HeartMate 2 device pumps blood not like a pump intermittently where you get the Holby City, ER, whatever show you watch on TV where you get the beep, 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 but it is actually what we call continuous flow. So if someone tries to measure Steve's pulse, they will not have a lot of luck because actually the blood is flowing through in a steady stream as opposed to the pulse we normally have. Sounds like a fun party trick. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it is sometimes, yes. Does that offer any advantages to a regular human heart if that's something that maybe just evolution hasn't got around to yet? Or are there any other challenges associated with it that are requiring more lifestyle changes for Steve and other patients? All of the above really... For us, the main thing that stands out as researchers, but also our colleagues, the cardiologists and the surgeons who implant these devices, it is, first of all, amazing to think that we never experience it if we are healthy. And when patients like Steve have such an LVAD and the blood flow is continuous, we still live, which is actually remarkable. First of all, it's actually remarkable that it is possible to live with it. Oxygen still gets delivered to where it needs to get delivered clearly. Unfortunately, there are some patients who develop complications, like pretty much with any disease. You don't have to be a heart failure patient if you have high blood pressure or diabetes. There are periods where either a patient doesn't feel very well or some patients do better than others. And we call this continuous flow, the lack of a pulse, also lack of pulsatility. Mm -hmm. And it's a word that's used a lot in this field. We say there is little or no pulsatility. And we think this can, in some patients, contribute to some complications. If it's all right with Steve to maybe discuss what some of these side effects might be, if you've had any first-hand experience, or if you just would rather leave the room while we talk about Um No, I haven't had many side effects, to be honest. I've had a couple of instances. The thing with the HeartMate 2, which is different to the HeartMate 3, the newer version is super-duper. It is all singing, all dancing. The HeartMate 2 was getting there, but it's not quite. I've had a couple of instances where I've been out with a family having a Chinese meal, reading the menu at the restaurant, and all of a sudden I tell the wife, um, my eyesight's gone a bit, and all of a sudden I just lost vision in my left eye. And it's all down to the fact that the LVAD produces blood clots. So it mashes the blood, the actual blood cells, forms blood clots, and you're on warfarin or any other sort of blood thinners to make sure that these clots aren't disastrous but one or two get through so for 10 minutes I could I didn't know what I'd ordered because I couldn't read the menu but my sight came back and then another time at home um, I wasn't feeling too good one day and I did actually have a mini stroke or a TIA they call it 
so my mouth dropped i couldn't lift my arms above my head all the adverts we see on telly so we called the hospital and they said are you sure he's having a stroke and yeah and the paramedic came out and here in cardiff he said oh i've just read up what you've got you've got an elvad let me take your blood pressure i said you won't i've got no pulse you're not going to be able to do that he said well what should we do we need to take you in for observation I said, best thing to do is take me in and give me a CT scan to see where the blood clot has stayed there or whatever. Don't give me an MRI scan because it'd be like sticking me in a microwave. Give me a CT scan. Let's see where the blood clot is, whether it's still up there. And in 20 hours, my face had sort of returned to normal. <laughs> as normal as normal can be. <laughs> Was knowing to ask for a CT scan expert advice any education that you've received after? A, a little bit, yes, a little bit. I mean, it's you have to take care of yourself. They've spent an awful lot of money on you. And it's your responsibility, well, in my view, it's your responsibility to give it the best possible chance to work. If you want to live, look after yourself. And they've spent a lot of money on me, so I want to live. I want to see my kids grow up as best they can, as best I can. Um, and I want to see Wales win the World Cup. It's never going to happen, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> we live in hope. You mentioned the Heartmate 3 there, and you've had the Heartmate 2 for five-plus years now, and Dr. Saw looking at the kind of the future of LVAD development and clinical trials. We're possibly coming up on some measurable data for the Heartmate 3 and similar devices at this point. Absolutely, the the Heartmate 3, although the Heartmate 2 was a great achievement compared with what, the options that were previously available to these patients. The Heartmate 3 is what we all now consider the this current generation, and it's it gives more hope and there are some main reasons for that which is mostly what steve has already alluded to uh, the reduction of the clot forming and so a thrombus a clot that forms within the pump as the blood goes through the pump before the pump then feeds it back into the body this has been reduced significantly and so the prevalence of stroke or an infarct of the brain uh, has been reduced very much so from 25% to 10%. Now, the doctors and certainly us as researchers and I'm sure the patients as well, 10% is still too high. But it's moving in the right direction. So the combination of patient education, patient feedback, clinical experience, research uh, is starting uh, to look like we are having a success and this third generation device seems to be doing uh, better than the previous ones. And with all that experience translating out to a global incidence of heart failure, the global numbers of people who are having these devices, how is that affecting life expectancy? How is that affecting the ongoing utility of these devices and the lives of patients being treated with them? Unfortunately, overall worldwide, and there is not much difference in what we consider typically westernized countries, it doesn't matter so much whether you live in the US or in Europe or in other similar countries, the prevalence, the number of people who are suffering from heart failure like Steve and this could be for different reasons following a heart attack but even without is increasing rapidly at the same time the number of donor hearts available that could help patients is staying the same or potentially in some areas even going down so these mechanical devices are becoming even more important if we want to help patients like Steve Uh, and actually uh, I have a personal case in my own family my aunt uh, also has a heart made too It is expected that if the available organ donor hearts, if the numbers don't increase, that we will implant more and more people. In fact, this is exactly what the statistics have shown over the last 10 years. Every year, 
the surgical implantations, the surgeries increase. And are there any ongoing international trials that any patients or practitioners out there listening to this, if they want to get involved with the kind of research, these kinds of devices that they could try and participate in, where would be a good place for them to start? Well, without uh, you know, drawing all the patients to, to ourselves, uh, there are probably multiple ones. It depends on what kind of research. There are many, many different medical centers that will have some research ongoing. I, I encourage anyone to just Google LVAD and find some medical centers. We collaborated with New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University, who have a large program. The U.S. have large programs, but other countries in Europe, such as Germany, Spain, Denmark, and the U.K. as well, are countries where there are LVAD programs. Uh, in terms of research, there is always research ongoing and certainly research needed, and we welcome to hear from any patients if they would like to participate. The most important trial, the Momentum 3 trial, has actually just completed. This does not mean that others will not follow. In fact, from this trial, I'm sure we'll follow the next one so that we learn and improve things more. But this one has actually just concluded very successfully. See from your perspective if there is anyone out there who is possibly on the waiting list for a heart transplant or is weighing up the options of, like you say, watchful waiting in hospital or getting one of these devices installed. Any advice for them? Get one. The doctor is not going to put you forward for an LVAD because it doesn't suit everybody. But if he's saying that your choice is an LVAD, to say no to a chance of life just seems ridiculous to me. So take that chance. To go on to what Eric was just talking about with research, there are researches going on, one funded by the British Heart Foundation, into actual living with an LVAD, which will be published, well, in a couple of years, two, three years. But we're ongoing with that at the moment, and that is via Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham at Birmingham University. The team up in Birmingham, which is one of the six transplant centres and LVAD centres in the UK, they're actually looking at a lot of doctors and even scientists and people in the know, should we say, don't like this term, but they're looking at whether the LVAD can be used as destination therapy rather than a bridge to transplant. So we are, oh, not we, I'm not involved in it, but people are looking at the fact that a right to life is possibly going to be an LVAD from now on. And it's there for your lifetime. So it's not there to make sure that you're well enough to have a heart transplant. Because, as Eric rightly said, the heart transplants aren't out there at the moment. Plus, the research being done on LVADs, I think someone in Poland actually had a fully implantable LVAD. So there were no leads coming out of his body. There was nothing. He did look a bit, little bit like a zombie, but it's happening. And that's all that's holding things back from our point of view and from what we can see is battery technology. Because of the heat generated by batteries, that makes it really difficult to implant fully an LVAD. But we're getting there. I'm saying we, it's the royal we, but the LVAD society is, I mean, there is no such thing as an LVAD society, but we are very, very happy about it. And as a part of the community of patients and people involved in this research, I think you're very well positioned to speak on behalf of them. I hope I am. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else while we're here that you'd like to mention or direct people's attention to or anything that we've missed? I think it's just uh, an opportunity to almost repeat what Steve said. People should get in touch. Uh, one of the 
still disadvantages despite growing numbers is the low awareness. So we're very grateful for people listening into these or reading some articles or informing themselves because the number of patients is growing rapidly, but even sometimes medical staff would maybe not know how to deal with a human who doesn't have a pulse and who has a cable coming out of the stomach, a cable that they don't know. There are other diseases that they're very much familiar with where cables come out of people but maybe not this one. So an increased awareness and equally also people from the community. There is a growing, loving, wonderful Elvant community, people getting in touch with scientists, doctors, and uh, trying to improve the situation further. And the most recent clinical trials, and here is another glimmer of hope, suggest that the patient's survival and the patient health is now also almost approaching one-to-one the successes of heart transplant. So not only is it an alternative, but in the past it was an alternative, a second best option that you weren't doing as well on as if you had a transplant. Now the two are getting almost the same. And we hope, of course, that with our effort and everyone else uh, who's involved, that we will get there in making it the, the success it deserves. Fingers crossed and look forward to hearing that good news sometime soon. Eric Steve, thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> <laughs>